Hello and welcome to the Lowy Institute Conversations, a podcast where Lowy Institute researchers and some of the world's leading experts discuss the international issues of the day. My name is Roland Rider and I'm the lead economist and director of the International Economics Program at the Institute. Today we're going to be talking about climate change and the outcomes of the COP26 summit in Glasgow, which just took place over the last couple of weeks. To do that, I'm very happy to be joined by two excellent expert guests. First is Dr. Vijaya Ramachandran, who's an economist and director for energy and development at the Breakthrough Institute. And we are also joined by Dr. Sam Deal, who is a research fellow at the University of Sussex and an associate fellow at Chatham House, and who also recently wrote an excellent new Lowy Institute analysis paper on China and COP26. Sam and Vijaya, welcome to you both. Great to be here. Thank you, Roland. Great to be here. Now, politics meant that expectations were basically pretty low heading into COP26, even though we also know from the science that the stakes couldn't be higher and there's an urgent need to cut emissions rapidly this decade, not simply by later this century. Hence, the running theme at the Glasgow summit was, quote unquote, keeping 1.5 alive, which is, of course, a reference to the more ambitious Paris Agreement goal to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. Now, there was seemingly some progress towards that goal, but it was clearly nowhere near enough with modeling by Climate Action Tracker, for instance, suggesting the world is heading for global warming of 2.4 degrees by the end of this century, based on existing 2030 pledges. And with that potentially reduced to 1.8 degrees of warming, if one also assumes longer term net zero emissions targets are also met. Now, the Lowy Institute is, of course, based in Sydney, but I'm not going to be asking you, Sam and Vijaya, too much about Australia's role in all this, although you're, of course, uh, free to talk about it. But suffice it to say that I think it's pretty clear that Australia was unfortunately one of the least helpful players at Glasgow by refusing in particular to put forward a more ambitious 2030 emissions reduction target, uh, despite being a rich country and one of the world's highest emitters on a per capita basis. But there's also a lot of other bigger things going on at Glasgow than just Australian foot dragging. So looking more broadly at the results uh, from Glasgow, as long-time climate policy watchers, uh, let me ask you both if you can very briefly give what's what's your overall sense of what was achieved? I mean, do you think Glasgow succeeded in keeping 1.5 alive by at least perhaps creating some positive momentum? Uh, or do you still think it, it fell short even by uh, that relatively low benchmark? Uh, Vijaya, can we perhaps start with you? Thank you, Roland. Um, I think there were many positive things about Glasgow. The world came together. Many countries made new pledges. Um, India came to the table with a net zero target. Um, there were other pledges made uh, to, to lower emissions further. It, it's very hard to know whether we're going to achieve a 1.5 um, degree target, but I think that every step that countries take should be regarded as progress, um, and the world needs to figure out how to help uh, particularly poor countries come together um, and, 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 and achieve these goals. Um, I was positive about many things that happened in Glasgow, but I think when it comes to poor countries, a lot more needs to be done um, to help them undertake a just transition. These are countries that need energy. They need a lot of energy to lift themselves out of poverty. And they also need to be worried about the impacts of climate change. And I think the rich world can do much more to help them get to where they need to be. Yes, and, and, and I think we're going to focus a lot on some of those issues, uh, Vijaya. Sam, what's your sort of overall take on Glasgow? Yeah, I don't really disagree with anything um, Vijaya said there. I think with Glasgow, it wasn't a moment like Copenhagen or Paris where there's a clear kind of pass or fail in terms of getting a, a treaty signed at the end. And so what success looks like is much more subjective depending on the position that you come into the talks 
for. And, you know, I, I completely agree that for poor countries coming into the talks, it was very clear that these have been a particularly bruising few years um, in terms of the impact of the you know, COVID-19 associated recession on economies that are facing not only a public health crisis, but a, a fiscal crisis and a debt crisis in many cases. And you know, some certainty and assurances on some of those critical areas like loss and damage and climate finance and so on was absolutely kind of front and center. And, you know, even more importantly, I think restoring trust in multilateralism, I think, was really sort of on the agenda. Whether that was achieved, I think, is still a bit of an open question, although there was some progress on that front. There was also, for the first time, the inclusion of an actual mention of fossil fuels, of coal in, in, in a final text, which, you know, is pretty in ast astonishing that it never had achieved that level of inclusion before, but at least, you know, that's some progress as well. I think in the end, you know, this is a, it's a ratchet process. Um, and, you know, if you think about the way that a ratchet works, it's not about a single turn. It's about, you know, continuing, coming back to the table, continuing to increase the ambition, um, uh, over the course of the, uh, the the conferences. And, you know, as far as we're achieving that, as far as we are signaling that actually, yes, this matters and that, you know, multilateralism has a future and there's a basis to, to um, move ahead, I think that's a good thing. And at least it didn't completely dissolve into a blame game and finger pointing between China and the, and the United States, which was one possible outcome that I feared. Mm. No, I think that's an excellent assessment, Sam. I mean, Coming back to you, Vijay, I mean, one of the you know, obvious tensions coming through in both your comments is, is the tension that's always there at these summits, which is between the rich countries and the developing ones, you know, with the fundamental tension being that the rich world is, is of course, responsible for the bulk of historical uh, carbon emissions, but it's the developing countries which are worst affected, uh, but also being asked uh, to basically decarbonize uh, as they uh, develop. Um, now, before the summit, you, you wrote, uh, you know, a rather scathing critique um, in Foreign Policy magazine. I think you followed it up a few times as well in terms of uh, what you labeled uh, colonialism in green, in terms of, you know, many Western governments saying that they were no longer willing to use uh, public money to finance overseas uh, fossil fuel projects in developing countries, and then also uh, pushing multilateral bodies uh, like the World Bank uh, to also do so. So, I mean, can you just uh, explain a little bit about the issues here? Because I think it does really go to the heart of some of the incredible tensions within uh, the glo global uh, climate policy debate. Sure, Roland. Um, you know, my concern is that poor people are increasingly being viewed in rich countries as sort of a threat to rich country climate goals. Um, they are no longer seen as human beings who need to lift themselves out of poverty. They are seen as sort of threats to our global efforts to, to curb carbon emissions. The thing that bothered me the most about what happened in Glasgow is that 34 countries pledged to not finance international fossil fuel projects um, and spent a lot of time congratulating each other about this uh, on social media and so on. Uh, but they did not impose any such ban on themselves. So there are no bans domestically, only, only in other countries. Um, you know, as this, this pledge was being rolled out, uh, Norway was increasing its gas exports to a number of countries. Norway is one of the, the signatories. Uh, the UK is exploring a possible new coal mine and has also signed deals for more imports of, of gas. 
um, the U.S. today is um, uh, auctioning off uh, oil and gas leases offshore. It is the largest such auction in U.S. history. It is in the Gulf of Mexico and 1.1 billion barrels of crude oil are estimated um, to be held within um, these offshore uh, assets. Uh, so the rich countries are giving themselves plenty of flexibility. You know, Germany has said it will exit coal in 2038. It's closing down its nuclear power plants, which means another 60 million tons of carbon dioxide is going to be released in the atmosphere as it switches from nuclear to coal. Um, these are the same countries that are lobbying the World Bank and that are pledging to not finance fossil fuel projects internationally. You know, what does that mean? In practice, that means that the poorest countries that need some fossil fuels for their energy development, because they need a lot more energy to lift themselves out of poverty, are not going to be able to use the resources they have. And we are talking about, you know, countries in Africa where most people cannot switch on a, a light bulb at home or do not have reliable electricity for 24 hours a day. I mean, even India, which is the, you know, often said to be the third largest emitter in the world, uh, on a per capita basis, Indians consume about a tenth of what the U.S. consumes. So this pledge is going to affect the poorest countries, giving them the least amount of space to build out their energy resources in order to lift themselves out of poverty, while giving rich countries themselves, you know, a lot of flexibility to do whatever they want to address high gas prices or to, you know, address their heating needs for the winter or to import more gas or or, um, you know, um, extract more coal. Um, so I think there's a sort of a real hypocrisy here. Um, and I think where, you know, I call this colonialism in green. And I think the reason why I call it that is that I know that rich countries know that poor countries need energy resources of various kinds to lift themselves out of poverty. You know, you cannot build roads right now with wind power. Um, you have to have natural gas for fertilizer production, for example. Um, you need fossil fuel backups for renewables. Almost every successful renewable energy power project has a fossil backup because renewables are intermittent and storage costs are very high. But these are things that rich countries know. And despite knowing that and despite giving themselves flexibility, they are not you know, willing to do that for poor countries. They are very happy to impose bans on poor countries that may satisfy their domestic constituency or make them look good um, you know, on the international stage. I think for me, um, looking at this from a, the perspective of poverty, uh, where you know, 600 million Africans do not have access to electricity, uh, and millions of people in India live in poverty. Uh, you know, Sam mentioned also they are dealing with the pandemic. Um, you know, these are countries that need help and they need a lot of flexibility. And Africa needs a variety of energy sources to develop. It's not going to be, um, you know, a majority uh, fossil fuel um, type of situation. Most countries are investing in renewables, but they need some flexibility. And I think these kinds of bans and public posturing um, in international fora do not help poor people. And I think we need to call it out for what it is. Well, thanks for that, Vijay. I mean, um, there's clearly a you know a strong degree of you know of hypocrisy running through there, on particularly in terms of what rich countries are, are thrusting upon others and versus what they're doing at home. So, you know, the development economist in me very much you know agrees with that. But with what you're saying, 
but one, one complication though I do notice is that in the you know statement that was put out calling for saying that these countries would no longer support these overseas fossil fuel projects. I mean, a number of the signatories were themselves also developing countries though. You know, there were a number of Pacific Island countries, some from Africa, some from Latin America. They're, they're, they're the ones that are more vulnerable to climate change. I mean, it wasn't only rich country governments that wanted this. There were, there were also some developing countries. So there's, there is still a tension there. You know, I I think the majority of the signatories were rich countries. Um, it's not as if the two African signatories uh, are financing any international projects. Um, I think for the Pacific Islands, of course, you know, climate change has become the overwhelming um, uh, concern. So I, I understand that. Uh, I think where this is going to bite is for the poorest countries that are the lowest em emitters. You know, if this kind of pledge was actually going to reduce emissions from the largest polluters or even the next to largest polluters, it might actually matter. This pledge will only be a binding constraint for the poorest countries because the other countries who are emitting can get money from private markets and are doing so. So this pledge is not going to affect India's development of coal or China's development of fossils or anything like that. It's only going to affect the poorest countries, most of which are in Africa. And for them, it's um, really going to have you know, very devastating consequences in terms of being able to build out their infrastructure and, you know, build roads and schools and hospitals and so on. Four African presidents have written in public against this pledge, saying that it will force poverty upon them. Um, and the rich world is largely ignoring these concerns. Uh, the president of the African Development Bank also made uh, a statement about how important natural gas is for Africa. And this really is about natural gas. It's not it's not about coal. Africa's not developing coal. It's really about natural gas. Often it's about natural gas as a backup. Uh, but for the poorest countries, which are also the lowest emitters, I mean, sub-Saharan Africa is about 2%, including South Africa. Without South Africa, it's about 1% of global emissions. So we are not talking about countries that are big emitters. We are talking about countries that are very poor and need you know, the most flexibility. So I want to come back to uh, the finance issues because that was really a big theme uh, during uh, Glasgow. But first, I want to bring you in, Sam, on China, which is, of course, uh, the world's largest greenhouse gas emitter uh, by a wide margin. Uh, President Xi Jinping was a no-show for the summit, uh, and China's new climate pledges seem to basically only formalize the commitments that it had already uh, announced before uh, to basically peak its emissions before 2030 and reach net zero emissions uh, by 2060. Now, there was also, of course, the surprise result of a joint US-China declaration on enhancing climate action, which admittedly maybe uh, didn't deliver very much, but is perhaps a bit of a surprise and a significant development given uh, the state of US-China relations. Now, you yourself have said a lot about both of these topics. You argued uh, in your paper uh, for the Lowy Institute that peaking emissions before 2030 really is too easy and an ambition uh, for China, and they should really be looking to do more. And on US-China relations, you've argued that we, we really need to get out of what you've called a false dichotomy between uh, cooperation or competition. Uh, so given all that, you know, what, was, what was your thoughts on China's role uh, at Glasgow? Uh, the fact that they didn't up their commitments at all, but then we also had this uh, result of a US-China joint declaration. Yeah, we saw the narrative on China shift quite significantly over the course of the two weeks of COP26. It certainly started with a lot of emphasis on 
uh, Xi Jinping's no-show, as you mentioned. And I think that's largely explained by concerns about coronavirus transmission. He's not traveled abroad since January 2020. There was also a lot of quite thorny domestic politics happening in China around the sixth plenum, which is a sort of a key um, bit of party work that needs to be signed off uh, before Xi's sort of coronation uh, next year uh, during a, a very important um, Communist Party Congress. Um, and as you mentioned, the pledges to um, the uh, COP process weren't significantly updated in the sort of uh, weeks running up to COP26, but they were reflective of enhanced ambition on uh, China's Paris commitments. Uh, it's just that they were put forward unilaterally by Xi Jinping um, at the UN General Assembly in September 2020 and then the following year um, in September 2021. And I think that's sort of an important distinction for China. I think they felt um, that they that their contribution was framed in a way that, you know, it was unfairly blaming them for not increasing ambition when in fact they felt like they'd already sort of put out their stall. And then there's a lot of focus in those sort of few days on uh, at the beginning of the talks on the contrast that China wanted to draw with the United States, effectively saying, you know, the US is coming to um, Glasgow claiming, you know, we're back in the Paris Agreement, we're uh, coming in with ambitious commitments, but of course didn't really have the means to implement them because they couldn't pass legislation through Congress. And the, the implicit contrast, of course, they were drawing was in China, we may be, you know, making um, commitments that haven't been judged to be significantly, um, uh, you know, uh, sufficiently ambitious, but we have the means to implement it. And we have this tradition of under-promising and over-delivering. Um, and, you know, there's some truth to that, I think, uh, particularly when you look at the rollout of renewable energy and the importance of that. Then at the end of the week, we get this sort of surprise announcement between the US and China that they are working jointly on enhanced ambition in the 2020s. And I do think it's significant. You know, the, the announcement itself doesn't have a huge amount of substance. There's an agreement to work together on uh, methane reduction. So, you know, a core non-CO2 warming gas, um, which, you know, is, uh, is significant work, but of course, much smaller than a lot of the other uh, commitments and sort of uh, moves that will be, need to be made. Um, there's joint collaboration on some key industrial challenges, specifically direct air capture of carbon, um, green design, resource reuse, all kind of interesting work. And then the formation of a joint working group. The joint working group part sounds kind of boring, but I think it's interesting because it sees the restart of work that um, was happening after the Xi Jinping, Barack Obama announcement in 2014 that really underpinned a lot of the work on Paris and was actually quite substantive. But I think the bigger point about the announcement was really the way that it signaled that China and the United States are both staying the course on Paris despite uh, in uh, greater geopolitical tensions between China and the, and the United States. And I think that does open up a possibility for a new way of framing that relationship. And, you know, I think there was something interesting in what John Kerry said in the press conference after the um, uh, after the announcement, when he uh, made the analogy of uh, Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev meeting in 1986 in Reykjavik, and the way that that restarted uh, a discussion that led to uh, nuclear disarmament treaties. And I think there's an important kind of framing there, which is effectively to say, we don't really expect geopolitical tensions to ramp down. 
um, you know, there's obviously a sort of a Cold War analogy there, which sort of suggests that if you take climate change as a, a core shared issue of security, of planetary survival, one needs to find ways to continue to work and to continue to coordinate around these, these critical issues, despite tensions in other areas. And I think that's reflective of maybe a new approach that could reflect that you know, climate change for China is very much in their national self-interest. You know, despite what's often argued in Washington and increasingly in Europe, China's participation in, in climate change treaties and, you know, uh, the Paris Agreement isn't a way to extract concessions in other areas like human rights or South China Sea or anything else. It is actually quite reflective of the fact that China sees um, a political economic imperative in moving towards a low carbon economy in positioning itself as a leading exporter of the technologies that will be needed for a carbon constrained world that it sees it as part of its strategy to move up the value chain away from low cost energy intensive polluting manufacturing towards innovation and services that it sees it as a part of energy security of dealing with air pollution all of this i think suggests a kind of um a commitment that can be you know trusted and and that there's a, a sort of a joint basis there for, for work. And clearly it's not ambitious enough um, and, and both sides will need to go a lot further. Uh, but I do think it's important as a kind of floor for ambition, if not a ceiling, to have the US and China both on the same page and not dragging down the rest of the multilateral agreement with a kind of blame game. That also isn't to say, as, as you mentioned, Roland, that you know uh, all of the dynamics between China and the United States will be uh, entirely cordial. I think it's completely um, fine to see healthy competition play out in new markets. And, and, and I think it's actually extremely important. One of the things that I think is opened up by um, uh, the, the, the um, agreement not to, or the, the pledges not to finance fossil fuels overseas um, is the is the other dimension of it, which is the importance of then funding renewable energy overseas. Now, um, you know, I'm not going to directly. I don't know if this directly sort of um, counters uh, Vijaya's argument, which I'm actually sympathetic to in, in, in certain respects. But I do think there's something important about when uh, Xi Jinping made the, an announcement in September at the UN General Assembly to stop financing um, coal on the on the Belt and Road or you know in, in China's overseas investments. He also made a commitment to begin to um, support developing countries in supporting rene renewable energy infrastructure, which of course exists already. But I think that signal is an important one, and it and it's an important one that the the US is also sort of making this a big part of the, their offer, and indeed India. You know that there, there were statements made throughout the conference on the importance of um, uh, the US's uh, quote-unquote counter to the, to the Belt and Road Initiative, the Build Back Better World um, that was announced by the G7, doesn't yet have a lot of concrete finance associated with it. India's grids, um, sort of global solar plan called the One Sun, One World, One Grid, all of these sort of competing infrastructure plans, if they play out in a competitive way, I think could be really beneficial for, for recipient countries who are in desperate need of new finance for, uh, for infrastructure. And we need to be you know, building out these new uh, infrastructures for, uh, for renewables over the next decade. Um, and you know, I welcome the kind of competitive dynamics that I expect to, to play out there. At the same time as of course, there needs to be coordination, particularly around some of those critical issues that we've mentioned earlier, like uh, loss and damage, 
um, uh, climate finance and the rest. You know, there are very important reasons, of course, why the multilateral sort of system needs to bind countries together to, um, uh, to, to work jointly. But I think those competitive dynamics are also going to be really important. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, we keep coming back to the climate finance question, which really just shows, you know, how central it really is, even when you start talking about relations between the United States and China. Now, just before we go to that, though, I mean, the other sort of big thing that, that sort of happened at Glasgow was, of course, around India. So, Vijay, I'd like to get your, your thoughts on this. I mean, I mean, next to the US and China, India is the next biggest single emitter of, of, of greenhouse gases. Um, you know, it copped a lot of flack at Glasgow for you know, objecting to the decision uh, to phase out uh, the draft decision to phase out unabated coal. And instead, you know, we've, there's only a commitment to phase down unabated coal. I mean, what's your re reaction um, to all, you know, to all of this, the reaction to India's actions? You know, again, India is in that situation, um, you know, where it's a developing country, it needs to both decarbonize uh, and develop. Uh, but at the same time, you know, India is special, a bit special amongst uh, developing countries, because it is also, you know, a huge source of uh, existing and growing uh, carbon emissions. Thank you, Roland. Yes, I think the India um, situation is quite complex and it needs to be addressed in that manner. Um, India is very dependent on coal. You know, 70% of power generation is driven by coal. Um, it has enormous coal uh, reserves. And I think for India, the transition out of coal has to be a just transition. Rather than sort of focusing on words you know, in an international agreement, I think the international community not, needs to figure out how to help India achieve a just transition. I, I don't see India as a spoiler. I think India has very ambitious goals, particularly on solar, as Sam just pointed out. Um, they want to transition to a renewable majority or even eventually a, a zero carbon power, but it's very complicated. And they have the additional challenge of lifting hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. And, and those people need more energy. You know, you need energy for roads and for schools and for hospitals um, and, and basic things like that. I think that's the challenge for India. And that's the way we need to think about it rather than just focus on, you know, words in an agreement and uh, become all upset because they said phase down and not phase out. Um, for India, you know, they're trying to achieve a very ambitious 2070 net zero target. They want to increase their solar resources from the current 44 gigawatts to 500 gigawatts by 2030, and then to 5,000 gigawatts by 2070. Um, you know, India has uh, ambitious plans, I think, in that regard. And, and as um, Sam also mentioned, rich countries can do a lot more in terms of developing technologies that countries like India can adapt or use um, to achieve these renewable energy goals. At the same time, I'll say a few things. India has millions of people depending on coal. Uh, the, the, the state um, agency that um, operates India's coal resources is called Coal India. And Coal India alone employs 4 million people. And 40% of India's 700 plus districts depend on some form of transfers from coal. Either they are cash payments uh, made to these districts from coal revenues, or um, they are uh, public utilities that are delivered through corporate social responsibility programs, things like health and um, education services and water services and so on. Um, there are you know, many different sort of aspects to the coal relationship. 
Uh, and I think we need to sort of help India figure out how to move these communities in a just manner to, uh, you know, to renewable energy. It's not just a question of shutting it down because the West wants a particular date to end coal. Uh, it's much more about figuring out how to work with the Indian government and how the Indian government needs to work with coal communities and with the coal industry. I mean, that's where the gains are going to be made in terms of reducing dependence on, on coal and, and moving to renewables. It, it has to be about a just transition for the people who are dependent on coal. Yes, very well put, Vijay. I mean, it is, you know, coming through all of this, it's very much about how particularly the Western and, and rich country governments are able to engage and work with some of the developing countries, especially the big ones, but, but also the, the more vulnerable ones. And that, you know, very much brings us, you know, to this issue around climate finance, which we've already mentioned a number of times. So let's, let's, let's finally come to it. I mean, this was obviously a huge issue at Glasgow uh, from all the reporting. It was a major uh, sticking point. You know, broadly speaking, there were the main issues were uh, three main issues. One around uh, the failure of rich countries to provide the $100 billion a year that they had, had promised in climate finance by 2020. Uh, secondly, a demand from developing countries for more of the climate money to be going into adaptation to help them cope uh, with the impacts of global warming rather than just uh, you know, trying to reduce emissions. And also a, a demand from developing countries for money for damages and uh, losses and damages linked to climate change due to things like natural disasters, which is essentially about so-called um, climate reparations, given all the emissions the rich world has made uh, in the past. And from what I can see in terms of the results del delivered at Glasgow, um, they were all, you know, fairly paltry or, in, in, in a sense, you know, not you know, on not hitting the $100 billion pledge, rich countries basically just promised to do better on adaptation money. They, they promised to double this by 2025, but uh, with the money for this really just coming from the existing pot, so not really additional. And then on, on loss and damages, um, basically this was just kicked, uh, kicked down the road with, with Glasgow agreeing to uh, begin a quote unquote dialogue um, on, on the issue. So Vijay, just just sticking with you, um, you know, what's what's your take on the on the climate finance outcomes that we we saw coming from Glasgow, especially as we know that the, the true scale of what's needed is is really, you know, in the trillions rather than in the billions of dollars. Yeah, I agree with that, Roland. I think the the true scale is in the trillions, um, and this is something that uh, rich countries really need to come to terms with. Um, there has been an enormous reluctance, I think, over the years for rich countries to acknowledge the most basic fact, which is that they are largely responsible um, for you know, the emissions to date, the, the vast majority of emissions to date. Uh, poor countries have borne the brunt um, of, of this carbon fest that uh, rich countries have engaged in, and poor countries are also yet to develop. So it's a, you know, it's a complicated situation for uh, for poor countries, and, and I think many rich countries are slowly coming around to the fact that we are going to have to allocate billions of dollars, maybe trillions of dollars um, for adaptation. Uh, we are need, we're going to need to think about compensation for communities that lose out from the closing down of coal mines or other types of fossil fuel projects. That's something that the US itself is grappling with and rich countries themselves are grappling with at home. Um, loss and damage, which was never on the table before, was finally mentioned 
um, but as you said, kicked down the road, uh, you know, with the with the promise of a workshop. So that's not um, terribly promising. Um, the the hundred billion in financing, you know, to remind everyone, was first promised in two thousand nine, um, and is yet to be delivered. So I think we have a long way to go um, in terms of in terms of figuring out what kinds of financing. Uh, need to be provided and how much needs to be provided and how these resources are going to be provided. Uh, but one thing is for sure, the amounts are going to be large. Um, I think poor countries are grappling with four things, energy access, with compensation, with adaptation, and with loss and damage. And we need to solve for all four of those things as we move forward. And, and, and Sam, I mean, you already talked about this a little bit, but where is China in the climate finance e equation? Um, you know, I know they, they generally support developing countries in their call for additional climate finance. Um, but as you mentioned before, China is itself also an important source of additional climate finance uh, through things like its Belt and Road Initiative. Um, but at the same time, you know, also you know, an interesting element here is you know, how does the West then respond to that, given you know, there's a lot of geopolitical wrangling around the Belt and Road Initiative as well? Right, it's not it's not entirely welcome um, in Western capitals. Yeah, it's it's a complicated um, knot, like you say, and it's one that uh, has sort of moved over the years as um, geopolitics have changed as well, and and China's positioning also sort of shifts, you know, between essentially um, the more traditional role it's played as a kind of defender of the developing countries and you know pushing for for climate finance and so on to, you know, on the other hand, in uh, acting as a sort of carbon superpower jointly with the United States. Um, and, you know, in that, uh, in that latter role, uh, China has actually made uh, its own promises on climate finance to um, poorer countries, uh, uh, most notably at Paris. It made uh, commitments of, of billions of dollars also, uh, some of which has been realized, some of which is sort of um, being fleshed out in a number of different plans around uh, training um, professionals from developing countries in um, in specific sort of low carbon technologies, um, financing low carbon uh, development zones in particular countries. There's a number of kind of specific things that are playing out through that um, UN uh, pot, as it were. But the much larger um, issue, as you mentioned, is is the Belt and Road, which you know isn't a single plan. There's no kind of master plan which you can describe as the Belt and Road Initiative. It's actually just more a catch-all for a much larger phenomenon, which is overcapacity in the Chinese system and need for new places for capital to 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 go and the creation of a kind of um, escape valve for that capital. And a lot of that has actually been in traditional industries which have, you know, are ceasing to find markets in China uh, because of the, the transition to a, to a low carbon economy, because of China moving up the value chain uh, towards innovation and services. And so there is, you know, the, the possibility to create new markets um, for, for example, coal-fired power in, um, in poor countries that are looking for investment. Um, of course, you know, it, it would be preferable, in my opinion, for that, for, for instead for China to, um, to to give preferential treatment to those more innovative industries, which it's also developed. And of course, you know, a lot of this diplomacy, honestly, is made possible by technological changes that have played out over the last you know, decade or so, thanks to the scale of, of investment in China. I mean, the 
uh, plummeting price of, of solar, uh, the transformation really of, of the economy around uh, batteries and electric vehicles and so on has a lot to do with the scale of production in China, with uh, competition between large Chinese firms and the uh, large scale kind of public finance efforts of China to sort of transform its um, its economy towards these strategic emerging industries that sort of played out. So China can, I think, harness that and play a much more uh, a much more proactive role in terms of supporting renewable energy development overseas. And I think it would be very much in line with their own political economic interests. As I mentioned, I think China really will benefit from um, you know positioning itself as the leading exporter of those technologies, given their importance for, you know, the, the, the next century. Um, and I think that's the direction that, that China is broadly going to go and the Belt and Road Initiative will end up sort of supporting. And like I mentioned, I hope you'll see the kind of competition um, playing out. Specifically on finance beyond, um, you know, what's what sort of, I, I guess, more narrowly marked out as climate finance, there's just the broader capital markets and the need to shift the rules essentially for, for where, uh, you know, where and how finance flows. And there are these big conversations happening um, in, in places like the city of London around, you know, how you mark out sort of green finance, um, green bonds, these sort of green financial products. And interestingly, China's actually quite involved with those conversations as well. They, they are innovators in the realm of kind of green financial products and um, uh, the, the People's Bank of China, the G20 Green Finance Committee and so on, actually have worked very closely with their, their counterparts in places like the City of London, and there has been progress there. Um, so that there's interesting kinds of um, areas that may be going a little bit under the radar and are quite technical, but I think to point to the sort of direction that some of the finance conversation will need to go. There's also between the EU and China work on, on a joint taxonomy for, for sustainable investment. Again, sort of uh, positive work that can, can and has continued to, to happen under the radar even, even while uh, relations have kind of, you know, for example, between the EU and China have largely gone into a kind of deep freeze in most areas other than on this uh, joint collaboration around how to move the trillions of dollars in the capital markets towards a more sustainable footing, which I, I think can only really be a positive thing. Mm, yeah, no, that's, that's very interesting. I mean, it sounds like, you know, we, we, we can basically expect to see more coming from China in various ways in the climate space, which, which I anticipate is going to be, you know, quite, quite, a, quite a geopolitical issue in itself as well, although hopefully a good thing from, from the climate perspective. Um, you know, just, just finally, I want to, I'd like to finish our discussion by you know, asking the two of you to just look ahead in terms, you know, you know what do you think are now the, the main opportunities going forward, particularly towards trying to reach a more ambitious, you know, global, global climate action? After, after Glasgow. I mean, Vijaya in particular, I noticed one of the, the more interesting things to come out of Glasgow was the announcement of what's been called an International Just Energy Transition Partnership uh, for South Africa, which involves the US, UK, France, and Germany um, establishing a mechanism to channel up to a promised $8.5 billion to help uh, South Africa implement its nationally determined uh, contribution I mean, do you see things like this? Is this a promising new kind of partnership? Uh, or what else do you, do you sort of see the most promising things looking forward? Yes, I think that is promising, Roland. Um, I think it is uh, very important that these countries acknowledge that a transition needs to occur. Um, and that for coal communities, this is difficult and complicated. You know, South Africa in some ways is similar to India 
in terms of its um, dependence on coal. And so I think this is a very positive sign and maybe um, something that other countries can look at as well as they're undertaking a transition. Um, my other concerns or my other points, I think, are that, you know, the amounts of money that are going to be required for these transitions is going to be a lot higher than what was committed to South Africa, I think, even, even for South Africa itself, but certainly for, you know, much larger countries, I think we are looking at uh, magnitudes um, greater than what uh, was promised in this particular partnership. But, but it is a promising sign. And I think the other promising thing is that next year's COP is going to be in Africa. And I think this is a chance to have a real conversation about adaptation finance, about loss and damage, about energy access. You know, what is it that poor countries actually are going to need to um, undertake this, this enormous transition um, to move away from fossil fuels to renewables? What are the sorts of steps that are going to be needed and how can rich countries help? I really hope that the fact that COP is moving um, to Africa will help move those conversations forward. Mm, that does that does sound like a potential opportunity. Uh, Sam, final final word to you. I mean, what do you think are the big opportunities or indeed challenges? You know, looking ahead, ahead, uh, particularly um, in terms of China's role within global climate efforts. I think we've said quite a lot already about energy and electricity and um, the way that China has pushed forward kind of low carbon innovation through you know long term, quite state centric, top down support. So I thought I'd maybe just leave you with like a, a quite different sort of opportunity or entry point that I think um, hasn't that we haven't discussed, uh, but I think does provide a kind of a, a different type of opening, which is thinking about the link between climate and nature and the role that China could play there. China is the host this year of the uh, UN Convention on Biological Diversity. Um, those talks were opened after being postponed in, in October this year, but then we'll reconvene in April next year for the kind of big negotiated session, which will lead to the next 10 year global biodiversity framework. And there's a lot of interplay, you know, and there needs to be a synergy between China, um, uh, between climate and nature. You know, in other words, if you are to um, get anywhere in terms of actually stemming the global biodiversity crisis, you need to address climate change, which is one of the major drivers of, of global um, biodiversity loss. Conversely, if you want to uh, go anywhere towards uh, addressing climate change on the scale needed, you need to think about the quote unquote nature based solutions. In other words, you need to have carbon sinks and, 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 and similar sorts of um, negative emissions technologies and so on in any kinds of uh, roadmap uh, in order for that to be done, done properly at scale. And it also, of course, needs to be done in a way that's just, that doesn't impact on other ecological systems, on food security and the rest. So again, there's a really complex set of issues where China actually is playing uh, a really important role. Um, and I think has an interest in trying to um, export some of the experience or to at least engage um, in a slightly different way about how you can find those interplays between, uh, between climate and nature. For example, in thinking about the role of spatial planning. So, you know, can you, for example, in a way that's just and, um, you know, works for communities and for food uh, production, section off large areas of land as carbon sinks in order to make sure that uh, you can also preserve uh, biodiversity. These kinds of conversations haven't been given um, as much importance in the in the UN climate process until recently, I think they're going to be really important because of the way they intersect with all kinds of questions around food, land, energy, water, 
um, and, and the rest of it. So that's one where, where I hope that there'll be more coordination and more attention uh, over the next year. Oh, that's, a, that's an excellent, excellent point, Sam. Um, and a good point uh, to end on. Uh, well, thank you, Sam and Vijaya. This has been you know, a really fantastic discussion. Thanks to you both for making the time uh, to come on the podcast. Thanks so much, Roland. Thank you very much. And many thanks also to my colleague, Josh Godding, for production support. You've been listening to Lowy Institute Conversations. From everyone at the Institute, thanks for listening and see you next time.